1: Bonjour, I'm Emily Nicolas, sitting in for Jesse Brown this week. Joining me today is Danielle Paradis, Canada Lands Contributing Editor. Bonjour, Emily. (laughs) Bonjour. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about uh, the Toronto Star, who uh, apparently knew it was questionable to both sides' eager trends Ryerson's legacy, but published a piece about that anyway. And we're gonna be talking about uh, this new media narrative according to which police dogs' lives matter more than indigenous lives. What the hell? Excited (laughs) Uh, and also weirded out, uh, but mostly happy uh, to be having this conversation with you, Danielle, on this.
0: I also feel all of those emotions. (laughs)
1: This episode is brought to everyone in part by Alena Simpson, Neil Barat, Corinne Whiteway, Jocelyn Ladroute, Nicole Fowley, Eric Plant, Dorian Logan, and Angela. Hi,
0: I'm Angela Hall. I'm a shelter administrator in Toronto. Canada Land Thunder Bay Series with Ryan McMahon introduced me to the truth of Canada's lifelong and ongoing
1: treatment of Indigenous peoples.
0: I rely on Canada land to always provide you with an unfiltered look at what's really going on in Canada.
1: So this past Saturday, the Toronto Star entertained the following debate on their website. Should Ryerson University change its name? While they published a piece about the yes side and the no side, the no side was really something else. Before I go into this conversation with you, Danielle, I'm just going to read some parts of the no side story so that our audience get a sense of what went down. The first sentence is as horrible as the Indian residential schools where emotion should not hide the truth about Egerton Ryerson. The main points that were made, Ryerson was a friend of indigenous peoples, now denounced as a white racist. However, how Ryerson respected and supported indigenous peoples, Ryerson was blameless, and um, basically there is no evidence against him. And Ryerson was only responsible for certain parts of the curriculum, but there's no evidence that he was part of building the residential school system itself. There's so much to unpack there, but before we go into that, I just want to ask you, Daniela, what's the first thing that went through your mind when you first read this piece?
0: Well, the first thing that really stood out to me was the third paragraph in the piece where they actually have a hotline for residential school survivors. And if you're experiencing crisis or hardship, mm-hmm. it was really strange because then it felt like the piece is like, well, now we're going to go on and like inflict hardship on you with
1: this this debate about Ryerson. And that was a weird juxtaposition. They were like, we know this is going to trigger you. So here's what... You- You need to do when we trigger you. (laughs) That's right. Like,
0: um, (laughs) you know, like, well, why bother? I guess Like, if you're going to publish the piece and then you're going to slap some sort of note of concern on top of it, like, can't you see the problem there? So that really stood out for me. It starts off with the view from Lila Pine about, yes, how how, um, Mm -hmm. Ryerson or University X, as she calls it, should change its name. And then later you get into the history professor, Ron Stegg, and some of those lines that you were just reading. And I don't know, like, I, I get tired of this statue conversation and name change conversation. Interesting. Well, it, it just, it narrows the discussion of, like, down to something measurable. Like, I understand people in the wake of the 215 residential school bodies found uh, and since then the number's been going higher and I've seen numbers as high as 500 Mm -hmm. I understand that people are looking for something tangible to kind of to to react to and of course that's going like it makes sense that that would be statues or things that Canada honors which may be in light of what they've done to Indigenous people doesn't deserve that same level of honour. So it completely makes sense. And yet, it seems like this discussion about Ryerson has been going on for a long time. There were uh, 18 faculty members who asked for the name to be changed. Uh, they pointed out to lower Indigenous student enrollment and other things. Right. And I think we should change the name, but that's not the start of the reconciliation process. Like the start is to actually learn these lessons. Right. I totally agree that we don't want to lose our history. I think we need to learn it better. But the name change and the statues, that can't be where we stop.
1: Yeah, just to give our audience a little sense of, you know, the broader context on this, following the the discovery of the 215 children, the statue, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Danielle, was just first vandalized and then toppled. The head was found just across Ontario on the site of protests that's currently going on. And now there has been as well a whole bunch of people at Ryerson led by Indigenous staff and professors at Ryerson asking the university to be called X while we change the university's name. And so that's the context in which this debate is happening. You know, if we come back to this piece of the Toronto Star, it's interesting that we're not just debating whether or not the Ryerson university should change its name, but we're debating the facts (laughs) that are known about Ryerson as a person. Basically, the piece that ran was published in print earlier than it was published online. And by the time it was published online, there was already time for the Toronto Star to write in print a note to readers. That basically said that they acknowledged that the piece, the no side of that piece that they wrote about Ryerson was not fact-based in the sense that it's already been established by the TRC report that Ryerson played a big role in recommending the residential schools for Aboriginal children. And the Toronto Star also notes that Ryerson University itself had acknowledged in the past uh, that Ryerson played an instrumental role in the design and implementation of the Indian residential school system. It seems like Central Star knew they were printing something that was not based on facts in part, printed it anyway, something that has to do with genocide, with death of Indigenous children. Like, first of all, what the fuck? And uh, second of all... What do you see that's going on in journalism when it comes to, yeah, publishing that kind of op-ed, publishing that kind of text and like drawing the line basically between what's ethical, what's ideological diversity and what's, you know, over the line?
0: When it comes
1: to something
0: that's an opinion piece, like I acknowledge that you have a little bit more latitude, mm-hmm. not with factual information, That that's where they completely went off the rails. But of course, I don't know that it's inherently wrong for somebody, a piece in Canada to talk about, like, oh, this is why we want to keep this... This name, But I think Uh it was, like, a very poorly done argument, which completely undermines your point. But, you know, like, you can have whatever opinion you want. But when we get, like, the Toronto Star, like, they don't need to take the place of a Medium blog post or your Facebook Uh and, like, publish those sorts of arguments without any kind of rigor. Uh It's it's kind of a disservice to the reader. It, It confuses. Like, if you read both of those pieces together, they're almost completely contradictory. So then if you needed to have a note to the readers after it appeared in print, to tell them that you agree that this isn't factually accurate why is it still online and factually inaccurate (laughs) that right there is a question now the people who wrote the for and against piece they're not journalists they're academics they have somewhat of a different opinion on like rigor and verification I think than the journalistic discipline does but isn't that the editor's job to make sure that you're translating it to what the readers expect so is, like, is the notion of, like, both sides just inherent to media? I mean, it it shouldn't be, but it is because media organizations are deathly afraid of being called biased, right? That's like right, the, right. the worst thing you can be called in media is, like, somebody who's biased. Even though journalism school, you don't necessarily, you, you learn, like, okay, you have to look at what the truth is more than looking at, at what a sense of balance is. But you need to fairly represent you know, the points, um, like right. if Ryerson were alive, we would need to reach out to him for comment. We would need to fact check his information. You could reach out to him. and actually reaching out to ancestors is always a really fascinating story. Um, a few people have done that. Oh, that, you mean the descendants? The descendants. Yeah. You know, they like, oh yeah, absolutely. Please change that name. Like, yeah. So just like what contacting descendants is really interesting um, because their perspective is often in line with people who are looking for a name change. So I I don't know, I think it's like an epidemic within media to represent the four and the opposing side. And the biggest problem to me is that it leaves the reader without any sense of what's real, like Mm. what's factual versus what's rhetorical. Although readers need to have the space to make the decision for themselves, they can't do that if you're sort of providing, here's a whitewashed view, and then like a view of an Indigenous person.
1: Mm. Yeah, which leads people to, you know, they decide their most comfortable writ, not necessarily the suicide that makes the most sense, so
0: no, not very ethical, very strange, very Canadian as well like I agree with you, I don't think there's a newspaper that wouldn't have ran this exact piece so i don't I don't know what that says about it, the state it's in like if it wasn't the Toronto Star, then you definitely would have seen that
1: in like the Calgary Herald. I was wondering if there were other things that you saw. Or things that were read in the, in the following, the weeks that followed this discovery of the 215 kids in Kamloops that really struck you in terms of that prevalence of the, you know, the denial narrative
0: you know i think i think for the most part the media actually showed pretty good restraint and sensitivity when covering mm. these pieces initially however as time goes on that that's when we start to have this like oh but let's debate the canadian legacy especially when you consider all of the canada day stories um you know some municipalities have decided mm. to Uh, forego fireworks or other activities um, in recognition Mm -hmm. of the schools and then other people right are very upset about that and quebec and alberta they're very similar they really (laughs) are Uh, very like individualistic no one's gonna like take this away from me like they don't even like canada but no one's going to take away their fireworks for the Canada Day celebration, and they're really annoyed with Canada and you know like transfer payments, but also well, this is our country and our heritage, and you're trying to get rid of it like that's the media <laughs> environment that I read things in. Mm. Uh, how about you? Did you come
1: across anything? personally I, I was actually on there even when people who were basically saying like we need to hold on, we don't have all the facts, probably because they never read the TRC report but also saying, well, tuberculosis killed a lot of children of all races back in the day, so we don't know, we need to hold on before accusing people of doing stuff. And so I saw that narrative as well. And the one thing that's really interesting as well is that, of course, with Quebec's history with the Catholic Church, it took a while, but people are now starting to dig into what's happening with the Catholic Church now and are they taking responsibility or not for what happened. La Converse, which is basically a grassroots media for BIPOC journalists, is I think the only Quebec media who took the time to knock at the door of the Sisters of St. Anne, who were one of the religious orders basically were working for the Oblates running the Camelot's residential schools. So they were actually a Quebec-based order uh, running the schools in BC because the privilege narrative is this is awful, but this is something that Ottawa did and that the English did and that you know the federal government did. And we as Quebecers, as French Union have nothing to do with it. And so trying to get over this narrative is something that's really interesting. But there's actually a lot of uh, investigation happening in the Devoir in the last couple of days in terms of trying to hunt down existing Catholic orders and seeing whether or not they're taking responsibility for what's happening in residential schools, but also what happened with all the other people who filed class action lawsuit against them for, you know, sexual assaults, abuse against children, even in the, you know, the, the schools that they ran for are white orphans, not just indigenous children as well. And so that's very much a debate that's going on right now. But there seems to be as well a difficulty to reckon with that narrative of what happened. I think the denial is coming from a different place than in the rest of the country. It's coming from the English did it, we did not. Uh, And then in Alberta and in Ontario, it's like, yeah, they did it, but it wasn't so bad and their intentions were good. So it's just basically two different ways of trying to not have the conversation we should be having.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting perspective. My grandma, who is Metis, mm-hmm. grew up in St. Boniface, Manitoba, and was educated by nuns. Now, she doesn't talk about her experiences in the same way as what we've read. And so, of course, not everybody is going to have that same experience, but like being a du being francophone and herself being catholic like that's definitely a part of the french canadian culture out here um in western canada where you can't really like in some cases it's very challenging to separate like metis identity from french canadian because right that's that's sort of what emerged uh within winnipeg yeah. <laughs> of course we know that catholic institutions are Responsible, and there's the same kind of finger pointing within like religious institutions, levels of government to just avoid looking at the problem, and that, that's really the biggest issue, right? Is it's it's not a good story. It's not it's not a story that Canada's going to be happy to talk about, but it is the truth.
1: Danielle, I hear you have two things to do. Note: I want you to go first, <laughs> uh, so you go ahead, and then I'll go next. So I would like to duly note, um, the city
0: of Penticton, which is in British Columbia, uh, just recently held a by-election seat on council. And we got this really interesting email from one of our listeners, um, who brought to our attention that one of the popular candidates, James Miller, is now both the managing editor of the Penticton Herald, and he's going to sit as a municipal councillor. Within the paper itself, there's been these really interesting concerns raised about like conflict of interest when you actually look at the paper itself you look at like yesterday's edition for example and almost every article is either by him or it is about him <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking at like a, an a3 spread right now where there's a line that says there'll be a figurative wall wow. between him meaning um, miller and the news coverage or commentary on city hall and then right underneath is a paid advertisement his little face saying thank you to the voters for uh, supporting him so um, wow you gotta pick one that's what i would say like you can't
1: you can't do both you have to pick one you can be a politician or you could be a journalist it's uh duly noted danielle <laughs> I wanted to also duly you note know, something that's happening, um, in Quebec City. Uh, there is basically this collective that's been, uh, going on for years now called, uh, sortons les radios poubelles, out with trash radio, basically, if I can translate this way, which is basically, uh, Posting online clips of the most egregious things that are being said on Quebec City's private radios that we could call trash radio for sure. There's been some battles in the 2000s about even not renewing the license of Radio X because of the things that they were saying on the air that would you know, looked like hate speech. They were peddling basically conspiracy theories against the evidence of, you know, COVID-19 first of all existing and then also uh, against public health measures. And so even the city of Quebec decided to withdraw their ads from the radio station and a lot of people followed suit. And so they've been losing a lot of radio. And so now Radio X is going after this collective of basically citizens uh speaking out against the things that they say that are out of line, and basically uh, going to the court and saying that you know this is harassment, which I find ironic because actually the reason why the collective is anonymous is because this kind of radio has been so harsh at criticizing the people that they don't like that it's been actually a security threat to a lot of folks who've had to go in hidings and actually leave Quebec City when they were the target of those private radio hosts. And so it's kind of a that there is a part of the country where media culture is so at the stage where it's now going to the court uh, because you don't let citizens criticize the media anymore. Duly noted. Do you have something else you wanted to say? I do, yes. So here's this
0: interesting story. It's not necessarily, uh, it's not about news media, but I thought it was kind of about media and culture uh, in the Montreal Gazette, Um, but it's from La Presse. So um, it's an article Mm -hmm. talking about... um, Minister Natalie Roy, she starts this news conference saying, the era of royalty-free elevator music is over. And I guess she had this idea while she was on hold um, with the Culture Ministry's phone line, and she heard an American singing a song to her, or as she says, a little song in English to me. And so um, there's a government initiative, and it's going to be $1.15 million out of um, a $4 million budget that's already existing for cultural promotion and the goal is to profile French and Indigenous and English songs that are coming out of Quebec so the faculties um, like Lotto Quebec will be affected and other areas where you would be calling and listening to hold music or elevator music yeah maybe this is a way to help out some artists during a time when they haven't been able to tour like maybe they can get some royalties. I mean if it's all Celine Dion I'm going to be mad.
1: Well, it's it's funny you bring up Celine Dion because there's a ongoing scandal since the last Habs game <laughs> with the Las Vegas uh, Knights basically trolling the abs with photoshopping a Celine Dion picture with their hockey uniform. So now people were trying to figure out online on Twitter, is it a fake picture? As Celine Dion crossed the floor, <laughs> is she a traitor to the Montreal Habs? And so I don't know that uh, before this mystery is resolved and whether we, before we have any clarity, I don't know that the Quebec government will want to run Celine Dion songs if we don't know whether or not she's still rooting for the Habs.
0: Are there any Celine Dion stats Statues we can rip down in solve.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one That's a good one I duly note uh, that uh, Danielle thank you for bringing it up there's just also one last thing I wanted to to bring up for this segment. Um, some listeners might already be aware, but uh, at Toronto's Trinity Bellwood Parks, there was an engagement uh, forcibly removed by police uh, earlier this week. Many people online made comparisons with the police presence during the G20 back in 2010. The pictures that are circulating are looking like they're from Star Wars stormtroopers. Things have since de-escalated and the homeless there have been moved to temporary housing. Whether or not that's a good thing, there's a lot of people who will have a lot to say about that. But I just wanted to insist on this press release from the Canadian Association of Journalists because according to them, five journalists at the same told the cash that their access to the fence areas in the park were blocked uh, by police. There's even one freelance journalist who was wearing a vest with news written on it that said they were shoved aside by police in an effort to bar them from accessing the area. Police told them that they couldn't go in because they needed to be on a pre-approved list. There was even one photojournalist, Ian Wilms, who was handcuffed and detained and had their photography equipment confiscated. He was ultimately charged with trespassing. And so there's a lot of questions to be asked about freedom of press to cover an issue that's of importance in this housing crisis, such as camps for the homeless and how the police is trying to displace them and the city is trying to displace them.
0: Yeah, the pictures were, were really concerning, you know, of police lined up like as far as the eye could see to go deal with a homeless encampment. Mm-hmm. If they're going to be this poorly behaved when the media is there, just imagine how the people who are experiencing homelessness are being affected and how they're being treated
2: without those eyes on them.
0: Yeah
2: along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2, along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com CanadaLand. Check it out. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand.
1: Danielle, I also wanted to get into this very strange headline I saw and that I think you saw as well. It read, RCMP dog killed, comma, man dead after police shooting in Northern Alberta. So I'm reading this story and the first two paragraphs are, an RCMP service dog was killed Thursday and a man is dead after a two-day-long police situation in northern Alberta involving a suspect who was believed to be armed and dangerous. The Alberta Serious Incidents Response Team said it had been directed to investigate an RCMP officer-involved shooting that took place Friday near High Prairie and resulted in the death of a 29-year-old man. It takes two more paragraphs until... We find out that the 29 year old man whose dad is actually Lionel Ernest Gray of the gift late Mitty Settlement. So an indigenous man. But that information is basically drawn in the article with details about a police press conference that basically spoke about the dog's life, their name, their years of service, the year they were born in. We have a picture of the dog in uniform and everything is about poor dear dog Yago, And there is not much detail about the man that was killed. It's not even said that he's killed. He's just said that he's dead and that he was armed and dangerous, basically. And so... Danielle, I wanted to ask you, why is it that in this story, I was reading so much about this dog? What happened, uh, do you think, (laughs) there?
0: Yeah, and and I'll have a piece on the website uh, on Canada Land about this in a little bit more detail. But Mm. similarly, really annoyed. I mean, I I hate some of the phrases that have kind of seeped Mm. into media, like officer-involved shooting. It's just... That's just a clunky euphemism, like the officer killed somebody, right? And whether or not that's appropriate, okay, we can have that discussion. But the fact of the case that like an officer shot another person and now they're dead, I would think so. In particular for this story, uh, it looks like what happened was the dog had died about, I think 20, there was about a 24 hour difference between the dog being killed and then... Um, Gray being killed because he From died. From his
1: wounds uh, later. You know, okay. Mm-hmm.
0: And so the first story was based, it was really based on the police news press release. Like, even in the URL, you can see the like RCMP dog killed and the suspect. So, what happened is kind of like a okay, then they found out that the Metis man, uh, Lionel Gray, had died, and they went back and kind of slapped the second half of the story uh-huh. after this piece about the dog. So, I mean, this happens in newsrooms, everyone's stressed out you know, trying to get through a story, I've rushed and put something up myself, but it's just sort of, it's our job as journalists to fight against the language of like the government bureaucracy and not let phrases that don't point accountability or even attribute action to anyone.
1: I just wanted to go back even like to the title, RCMP dog killed, man dead Mm -hmm. after police shooting. So the dog was killed, but the man is just dead.
0: Yeah. He just keeled over.
1: Yeah. He just died. So I was wondering, you know, I I hear, I think this is a fair assessment, what you're saying in terms of like, the dog died first, basically, so this is why they're leading the story with it, although it's a poor excuse. I know you're not excusing, you're just explaining it, right? But the difference of vocabulary, this is something that we've been, I think, over and over and over in the last couple of years of basically how political it is for media to print that a person was killed by the police. The word killed is always avoided to the point where we come to those phrases such as officer involved shooting or things like that. There was even a story last um, fall about a baby killed by the police and that's not how they led with it. It's just, I don't know if you remember that, but it was in Ontario. It was one year old boy dead a PP officer injured in confrontation near Lindsay, Ontario. And then when you read the story, then you saw, okay, the boy's father was also shot. And uh, the story was like, well, there's nobody else but the officers who had guns. We know that the officers shot at the man who was hit. And then the one-year-old son was in the backseat of a vehicle. He died of a gunshot wound. But the SIU in Ontario said it is unclear if the gunshot came from the three officers, while like, there's no indication necessary that the gunshots came from anywhere else mm-hmm. but the officers. And so like, it's just a broader issue of not being able to print that a person was killed by police. But it's okay if a police dog is killed. It's something that you can print. And so there's a double standards there that I don't know what to do with, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that journalists just have to reject the idea that it's biased to point out that an officer shot somebody if that's what happened it's not good to weigh in before all the facts are known but if you know for a fact that uh-huh, uh-huh. the police and a part of the problem is of course the police themselves and and the information that they communicate to the press but when we get to something like officer involved shooting like we just we don't have to write that like <laughs> emily let's just like declare a motion here that We strike that from the journalistic vocabulary.
1: I second that motion for sure. I feel like that's a really good solution. Another thing I'm thinking of is the issue of basically reprinting press releases from police as the facts we know so far. You know, there's a difference between the facts we know so far and here's what the police is telling us so far and also taking the time to write, here's what the police is not telling us so far. For example, to go back to the dog story, now there's an update and it says it's unclear who killed the dog. So basically it's possible that the dog was basically after after the man, uh, Lionel Gray, and that the police injured and killed their own dog while they were, the dog was near the man they were shooting. So we don't know that yet. And so it's also... I don't know, writing the facts that the police are providing, but also like reading the silences as well and making that explicit, the things that the police is not saying so far so that we don't know about this, we don't know about that. And there's also this cycle that really... Is has been, I guess, spoken out against uh, already from basically if you're going to print something other than just the press release, some police communication services get annoyed at you as a journalist and they're not going to give you inside info for anymore. And so there's an incentive, especially when you're not, I guess, stable, you're still young, to just not piss off uh, police officers in the piece that you're going to write if you want to have access to information in the future. So using basically information as a way to control the media narrative. So there's just so many ethical issues there. And I feel like we're going over this again and again, every time there's a police shooting. Of a civilian and it seems like we're having those conversations but that kind of headlines and that kind of story gets printed again and again like you pointed out there's precarious positions there's a need to
0: maintain a respectful relationship with the police but there's also just a a responsibility of them of um there's a responsibility of journalists to sort of reject the kinds of things that government institutions would do to us and we have a long and storied history of of uh, fighting with the government. And we shouldn't stop that now. And I'm including, because of course, police are usually part of the municipal government level. That's uh, where they come
1: in. There. Yeah. Why, why do you think we treat police communication agents differently than we, we do uh, elected officials?
0: Yeah. Police just get treated differently no matter what. Like if you look at budget, uh, for example, any other area of the municipal budget would be open for debate on making cuts. But the second you try to make a cut in a police Budget. It's like how dare you, and just the notion that there can't possibly be administrative waste or anything. So it's um, the police are treated uniquely in several different areas. As it comes to the press, I think it's that fear what we talked about at the beginning of the show—the fear of being called biased, especially in an environment where people are openly criticizing the police. The media perhaps feels like, mm. oh, we we don't want to we don't want to look like we're trying to protest when we're trying to tell this story um i think that might be some of the inklings and of course uh, you see you know fairy creek for example like some people actually do have very they they've developed relationships with law enforcement officers and that probably has led them to use the versions of the story that they're given rather than being critical which is what you do when you're ha- when you have a relationship right you're less
1: likely to be critical right um, another thing that's related to what the point you just said that comes to mind as well, that's been, you know, in my own experience in Montreal, I've been seeing a lot is that people will do the investigation, asking, you know, after the record for police sources to come and give more details of what's in the press release. But they won't do the same thing when it comes to asking people in the community about what happened or what they think might happen. And so oftentimes there's not the same relationships especially when it comes to Indigenous communities, Black communities with newsroom, for obvious reasons that we all know. And so people will pick up the phone call and have that police ear on, you know, how things are felt from the inside. But there's not necessarily, like, the community organization contact or, in this case, the media settlement from which the man is from. Like, nobody thought of, you know, calling them up and seeing what's up with the man. And instead of just basically dehumanizing him, That's the thing. It's like you're not going to get any information on him except that he was potentially dangerous and armed. Right. And so from the get go, the man that was killed is actually dehumanized or it's implied that he deserved to die from the first paragraph of a story like that. And if there's going to be a story that's ran about who the man was, it's going to be maybe three days, four days, five days after. And I know that sometimes it takes time to reach out to family and the family is grieving and all of that. So there's also explanations for why that is. But the result of it is that we end up with this media narrative where a person is just basically dehumanize and the police press release right after it's basically killed by the police. And so you have this double dehumanization that's happening. And there seems to be very little, you know, solutions or, you know, ways to go around that. And we just take that for for granted that this is just the way stories are going to run about people being killed by the police.
0: Yeah. And then the investigation, I mean, like, you know the in this case it's the Alberta serious incident response. Uh, but there's other third party mm-hmm. um, organizations that investigate shootings across Canada. Their investigations always going to come out like a year or two later. and so the listener, the reader has moved on, doesn't mm-hmm. even remember this story and, and the details about what happened they, they come out so much later. So you're right, there's not a fully human picture yeah. um, here of the man who was shot and killed. But the dog, wow, the dog gets eulogized.
1: That's shortcuts for this week. Canada Land is on Twitter at Canada and you can find me at Emily underscore NI on Twitter. You can always also email Jesse, uh, who's our regular host, at jessie at CanadaLand.com. I can assure you that Jesse reads everything that you send. Where can people find you, Danielle?
0: Well, I agree. Please forward any complaints to Jesse
1: Brown. But uh, <laughs> you can find me. On Twitter, at Danny Parody. Awesome. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lan, with additional production by Tristan Cappacchione. Team music is from So Called. Syndication is by the CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you'd like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join.